Sports fans of all ages, faces, and places from every stadium, arena, and auditorium all over the world. May I have your attention, please? What well, time's coming when we're going to have to handy up? Handy up and kick in like men. Like men! It is now time to bring to your listening ears, hearts, and minds a sports podcast named Wendell's World in Sports with the one and only Wendell Wallace. Tell him how you feel. A podcast that gives you strong, passionate, unapologetic, uncompromised thoughts and opinions about the everyday happenings in the NFL. Mahomes looking to flip, takes it in for the touchdown. And college football to the NBA in my Georgetown Hoyas. Fires one down and an exclamation point for Milwaukee. To any other sporting news of the day. And now, introducing the man whose love of sports was born and bred on the greatest Muhammad Ali, Lim Bias, Magic Johnson, Bernard King, and Eric Dickerson, Wendell Wallace. Bonjour, bonsoir, good morning, good evening, que pasa, shalom, wassalamu alaikum, konnichiwa, namaste, welcome to Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us, a lot of good things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to my podcast, do me a favor though, iHeart, iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, anywhere where you listen to your favorite podcast, if you could do me this favor, if you could go ahead and download Follow, subscribe, rate, review uh, this program. Most importantly, enjoy, thoroughly enjoy listening to this podcast. Very much appreciate it. Of course, this is the most unique, entertaining, thought-provoking sports talk podcast that uh, you can listen to. Do my best every single week to uh, make sure I live up that show. My podcast lives up to the moniker. So, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, listen to my podcast, whatever you're doing, whether you're driving in the car, whether you're at work, whether you're waiting for a flight, whether you're on a bus, whether you're walking down the street, whether you're at the gym, whether you're just playing video games, whatever, man. Appreciate the uh, appreciate the time uh, for you to listen to my podcast. A lot of things that I want to get into. Today, I'm going to get into the NFL, the takeaways, what I saw in week two, the preseason. The second part of the podcast, or the second segment of the podcast, I was going to concentrate on college football. And I'm going to concentrate on college football. I'm going to be speaking about what's going to be happening with Alabama. I'm going to be speaking about Georgia. Can they three-peat? Is, is Georgia already a dynasty? Or are they a dynasty in the making? What is going on? What, 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 what would you apply? What is the importance of Georgia this season in terms of what they're trying to do to win their third straight national championship? I'll get into that. I'll get into the team, I think, that had the best chance to upset Georgia in that quest for them to uh, win a third straight championship. And no, it's not LSU. And no, it's not Alabama. And no, it's not um, Clemson. It's not one of the traditional powers. No, it's not anybody from the SEC. I'll tell you who that is in the second segment. Um, so I'll, I'll get into all of that. But there's one thing that I really want to dive into. Just give you a, a little preview of what I want to dive into. The second part of, or the second segment of the podcast. Netflix came out with a docuseries yesterday about the uh, University of Florida, the football program, uh, back in the day with Urban Meyer and Brandon Spikes and Tim Tebow and Percy Harvin and, 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 and those guys. And it was really interesting to watch. I watched uh, all four episodes. And the main takeaway that I had when watching uh, those shows, 
and watching uh, the docuseries and watching the atmosphere and, and everything that surrounded that football program uh, back in the day. It, it, it's amazing to me once again how you have folks crying and bemoaning and whining about, oh my goodness, it's so terrible, it's so horrible that these players now have NIL or these players now are being paid or, oh my goodness, I can't believe the transfer portal. This, this notion... This whining and complaining from certain segments of our uh, culture, of our society, my generation, who are just whining and crying about the death of college football because now you have the super conferences or the formation of the super conferences and oh my goodness, players are going to get the opportunity to make money off their name and likeness and this is terrible and this is horrible and basically it's it's a sad day in college football when now you give more power of their careers to the players and not all on the coaches and this that and the other and student athletes and this is going to be bad for college football and all this nonsense and tradition and loyalty and all this kind of nonsense watch if you haven't watched the docuseries as I mentioned before on Netflix about the University of Florida football program back in the day with Urban Meyer and those guys Watch that docuseries. Watch what those guys had to go through. Watch the importance. Watch the impact. Watch everything in terms of what it meant to be a Florida football player for the community, for the state, for the region, for the school, both in terms of pride, both in terms of finances. Watch that docuseries. Then come to me and then tell me that no, it's good enough that players only receive a stipend and scholarship for their uh, trouble to uh, go through what they go through for a football program at a big-time football program like the University of Florida. Because I'm quite sure if you watch that docuseries, it ain't that much different in Alabama. It ain't that much different at Clemson. It ain't that much different at Michigan. It ain't that much different at Ohio State. It ain't that much different at Texas. It ain't that much different at the University of Oklahoma. Big-time college football. What they go through, the meaning, the, 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 the passion... <clears throat> the passion of those fan bases and those cities and those towns and those universities and those regions and everything surrounding that. Please watch those docuseries. Please watch that docuseries about Florida. Equate the fact that this is probably happening or this is happening in some form in terms of the passion, in terms of the dedication, in terms of the focus, in terms of the priorities of winning football, of being able to field good football teams. Watch that docuseries, project that onto other top flight, high elite college football programs, and then come to me and explain to me that college football is out of control, college football is horrible, college football is the worst that it's ever been, because now we have the ability to have more, to give more control to the players than uh, ever before. Now all of a sudden, these players now absolutely have the opportunity to get money off of their name and likeness. How... This is, this is now going to be the end of amateur athletics as we already know it, as, as we know it right now, or what my gener- generation grew up knowing and loving and this, that, and the other. P- please tell me that, um, you know, after watching that docuseries, that college football was so much better back then than it's going to be moving forward. I'll, I'll, I'll get into that again in a lot greater detail along with other things dealing with college football uh, in the second segment of the podcast. But first... I want to get into a little bit of the NFL. I know preseason week two, I normally said that, hey, man, this is a situation where 
you know, during the uh, preseason with the NFL, you really shouldn't pay too much attention to it because after all, the season's going to be long and, you know, you have the twists and turns and the ups and downs and the goings on during the regular season. It's almost like an entire, it's almost like a season in itself. So what normally happens in the preseason usually doesn't translate into the uh, regular season. So, you know, most of the time I say, as I mentioned before, In my last podcast, good opportunity, great opportunity to hang out with the folks, hang out with the parents, hang out with the children, hang out with the spouses, go ahead and do some things, take care of the honeydew list, make sure that you're in good graces with your significant other, make sure that you're in good graces with your parents, make sure that you're in good graces with your kids, make sure that you have homework that you need to do, make sure that you have a foundation set up that you can get it all done before the game start on Sunday because you want to be able to watch uh, football on Sunday. So now is the time to make sure that you get all of those things in order. Because of what happened on Saturday and Sunday, because I was inside most of the time or outside just watching the rain fall on my head, that uh, I had an opportunity to uh, really concentrate on some um, on some football games in the NFL, some preseason football games in the NFL, which I normally don't do. We even had the opportunity to watch some Seahawks versus the uh, Dallas Cowboys as I was, as I was watching uh, Sean O'Malley knock out Aljamain Sterling at uh, UFC, the uh, uh, UFC uh, pay-per-view. So some of the things that I came away with when I was watching these games and when I was reviewing these games, when I was going over these games, when I was reading about these games, when I was studying these games, when I was doing my homework for these games, Look, we know in the NFC North, or the AFC North, excuse me, you have uh, contenders such as Cincinnati, one of the elite teams in the NFL. You have uh, the Baltimore Ravens coming in now with the uh, newly signed Lamar Jackson happy in terms of being entrenched at their starting quarterback. You know, we have the Pittsburgh Steelers. We have the Cleveland Browns. Cleveland Browns with Deshaun Watson in year two of being the quarterback with the Browns and another opportunity for him to uh, shake some of the rust that was happening after he basically missed a season and a half um, because of uh, some things in terms of being the quarterback. So the rust is con- being, it's continually going to be eroded for Watson for him to get back to the quarterback that he was when he was with the Houston Texans and uh, was one of the elite quarterbacks in the NFL. So in the AFC North, when you take a look at those four teams, when you take a look at Cincinnati and Baltimore, Cincinnati, Baltimore, uh, Pittsburgh, and Cleveland, you can make the argument uh, along with other conferences or other divisions that it's one of the toughest in the uh, NFL. One of the things, though, when you speak about it, and I was concentrating really on the Pittsburgh Steelers and with Kenny Pickett. Now, a lot of people are feeling that, you know, the Steelers really aren't going to be doing some things. And, you know, the questions are going to remain at quarterback, whether Kenny Pickett is the guy to move forward at the Steelers try to get back to being of elite status. Well, look pretty impressive. Uh, the, uh, it pick, the Pickett and the Steelers against the Bills on, uh, on this past weekend where they won 27-15. The Steelers scored all their touchdowns, uh, all three of their touchdowns so far on huge drives, two of them coming, covering 80 yards, explosive plays, capping off each one of those. Kenny Pickett going three for four for 43 yards and two series of work. And you speak about through three preseason games this season, Pickett's got nine for 11, 113 yards, two touchdowns, no interceptions, a passing rating of 149. 
0.1. And you take a look, I'm always interested in terms of the preseason, if you are going to be focusing on something, if you are going to try to find some clues, if you are going to try to find some evidence of some of these quarterbacks who we might not know too much of, not the, not, not the rookie quarterbacks, but I'm talking about the second-year quarterback, the third-year quarterbacks, the starting quarterbacks for the first time in their careers. It's always interesting to uh, take a look during the preseason to see what type of jumps that they made from year one to year two. It's, it's almost similar to when you watch the Summer League out here in Las Vegas, the NBA Summer League, and you see these teams out there on, out there on the court doing their thing. It's always interesting to see which high draft pick going back to play Summer League again is going to be that guy that's going to be dominating the, 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 the evidence of improvement in their game, not just from a physical standpoint, not just from a skillful uh, standpoint, but also just a mental standpoint, a confidence standpoint that, okay, I've been around the block, I know what the NBA is all about. Now, going into the Summer League, I'm going to be working on this. I'm going to be working on that. But I'm also going to show my coach. I'm also going to show my teammates. I'm also going to show my general manager that before, between the end of the season and Summer League, that I have been working on some things to accentuate what you want me to do going into the season. And I'm going to show it off in the Summer League. And I'm going to show it off with some confidence to let you know that even though this is Summer League and some things don't equate to from from summer league moving on to the NBA regular season, but these are some things that you can definitely say that I've improved. These are some things. These are some skills. These are some confidence issues that I've definitely improved on, and you can take that to the bank in terms of that'll be a greater asset for me in year two than it was for me me in year one. It's the same thing now with these preseason games in the NFL when you're speaking about Kenny Pickett, when you're speaking about Jordan Love, when you're speaking about some of these quarterbacks who are now enter, entering the second year of their NFL careers or in the essence of Jordan Love when you're speaking about someone now who's basically saying, okay, we have now pegged you as to be the franchise quarterback of this team. You have learned from one of the best who's ever played the game. We are now going to make that transition. After four years of basically not getting any time, of not seeing the field for any type of consistency, now this is going to be the time for you to take the mantle. This is going to be time for you to take that leadership role and for you to be the starting quarterback for this football team. How are you going to look? How are you going to do? What type of evidence are you going to give us both either positive or negative, but you're going to be the guy that's going to be ultimately leading us to championships. Those are some of the things that I'm taking a look at from some of these second-year quarterbacks and also from quarterbacks who have been anointed as starting quarterbacks and moving and moving forward. And so with Kenny Pickett, I take a look at this and I say, okay, unlike maybe like a Bryce Young or an Anthony Richardson or a C.J. Stroud, and I'll get into the rookie quarterbacks a little bit later in the segment, but, but, but taking a look at these guys, it's like, okay, I can take a little bit more, even if they're not playing a full quarter, even if these quarterbacks aren't playing a full half, even if they're not playing the entire game, I can go ahead and I can take a look at these guys and say, okay, yeah, Pickett is ready to make that next step, okay? We, we don't know ultimately what the ceiling is going to be for Pickett. We don't know eventually what the ceiling is going to be for Brock Purdy. We don't, we don't know. But we do know that some of the things that were shown in his rookie season have now been accentuated and improved 
and it's showing now in the preseason, it was showing in training camp, and that translates over to the first part, or in terms of the first side of evidence that we get to see, as far as being on the football field and having that translate off the practice field to the playing field, the playing field that we know of, Kenny Pickett coming in, it looks like Kenny Pickett is going to be that quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Now, when you line him up or when you speak about the other quarterbacks in that division and how important that they are, Kenny Pickett, because of the scheme, because of the philosophy, because of what the Pittsburgh Steelers is all about, because of Najee Harris, because of some other things, Kenny Pickett is not going to ask to have the same responsibilities as a Joe Burrow. He's not going to have the same responsibilities of a Lamar Jackson. He's not going to have the same responsibilities of a Deshaun Watson. So in essence, while the improvements have been made from Kenny Pickett, they're great enough improvements for the Steelers in themselves to make a strong leap because the Steelers organization, coaching staff and such, are not asking Kenny Pickett to throw the ball 55 times a game. They're not asking Kenny Pickett to be the main guy for that team on offense. They're not asking him to do everything. He doesn't have the responsibilities that an elite high-paid quarterback is going to uh, have. So Kenny Pickett, in that essence of what we see, in terms of him, him improving, um, I think bodes well for the Pittsburgh Steelers this year. Always in the NFL, always in the NFL, history has shown us there's going to be some teams in this preseason who we think are going to win the Super Bowl that won't even make the playoffs. And there's going to be some teams coming into the season that we think are going to maybe win three, four games at the very most who are going to be competing, making playoff spots, and in some opportunities, going all the way to championships and sometimes even winning conference championships. So the key is, it's going to be, okay, which one of these teams, as far as evidence that we can show, both in terms of overachieving and underachieving, that we're going to see in the uh, preseason? Which players are going to be the catalyst. If we're speaking about a team whose expectation is going to be, um, is going to far outdo uh, what they're expected to do, wh- where's going to be the evidence normally coming from the quarterback? The improvement of Kenny Pickett or what he's shown in the preseason, does that make Pittsburgh one of those teams who could uh, overachieve in terms of what their expectations are? Has the Green Bay Packers, again, found their quarterback in terms of Jordan Love. And what's Jordan Love's responsibility or what are the expectations? There we go with that word again. Expectations. What are Jordan Love's expectations in terms of being the starting quarterback for the Green Bay Packers? Are the Green Bay Packers in a transition year due to the fact that they no longer have um, a generational great quarterback, Hall of Fame quarterback in Aaron Rodgers? Yes, of course they are. When you're speaking about uh, bringing in a new quarterback, a quarterback who had been with the organization for four years, but again, has not seen that consistency of being on the field. He played a game a couple of years ago against Kansas City. He He's filled in every now and then. But for the most part, we really don't have a book in terms of what Jordan Love is as a starting quarterback in the NFL. Now we have that opportunity. Now going into this preseason, let's see some evidence. Let's see... What's happening in terms of the sleuths out there who can predict, is Jordan Love going to be that guy or is Jordan Love going to be a failure? What is Jordan Love's expectations? What is Jordan Love expected to do this season? What does Jordan Love need to do this season in terms of being a productive quarterback, negative or positive for Green Bay 
to continue to believe that Jordan Love is the right guy. And there's a situation where we always, in terms of the preseason, because these guys aren't playing consistently, because these guys might be getting a series or two, sometimes we try to judge how a quarterback is doing, how a quarterback is progressing based off of one series of play, which you can't do. You have to take the totality of what he's doing in practice, what the coaches think, this, that, and the other, his players, his teammates, and such, for us to really get an understanding of the progression, of the maturity, of the growth of Jordan Love, the uh, starting quarterback for the Green Bay Packers. So, yeah, Jordan Love continues to look sharp throughout the preseason against New England on uh, Saturday night. Completed five of eight passes for 84 yards. And the touchdown through pre, uh, through two preseason games. Yeah, yeah, 12 for 18, 130 yards, two touchdowns. That's good. That's good. That's good. So from his teammate, from his coaches, okay, he continues to progress. He continues to improve. He continues to grow. That's great. That's wonderful. He's, he's, he's fitting in. He's getting more confident. He's feeling more comfortable in terms of being that starting quarterback for the Green Bay Packers. But what exactly does that mean? What exactly does that mean? Does that mean that he's going to be a competent quarterback? What are the realistic expectations that you have as a Green Bay Packer fan for Jordan Love this season? Do you want him to be Aaron Rodgers? How good of a quarterback should he be? Should he be 50% of what Aaron Rodgers was? Should he be 20% of what Aaron Rodgers was? What Aaron Rodgers are we speaking about? When you speak about the receivers, when you speak about the offensive line, when you speak about the defense, when you speak about the team in its totality, what should be the expectations for Jordan Love and the Green Bay Packers and how much of the success or failure should ride on the arm of the quarterbacking play of Jordan Love? You can't expect the Green Bay Packers to win the NFC North when last season they didn't win the NFC North. Then you speak about, well, Kirk Cousins and the Minnesota Vikings, they're still around. You speak about the improvement of the Detroit Lions and many people, many prognosticators, many people who make six and seven figures for doing this job and going on TV and going on the radio and going on the internet and going on uh, everything else are talking about how the Detroit Lions are going to be that team that's going to shock, that's going to surprise, that's going to win the division. Jordan Love is still a mystery. Jordan Love, in terms of what he can provide for the Green Bay Packers, for them to compete for not just a divisional championship, but ultimately a conference championship and a Super Bowl, those are all an enigma when it comes to Jordan Love. So what should be the expectation? So what are your expectations for Jordan Love year one? For me, it's just a wait and see. I have no idea. And that even goes for my Washington Commanders with Sam Howell. I don't know anything about Sam Howell. Yeah, he looked pretty good on Monday night against the uh, Baltimore Ravens, but what does that mean moving forward when especially when you're speaking about, yeah, my commander's quarterback, Sam Howell, he looked good against the Baltimore Ravens, but then peel back a couple of layers and figure out that, oh yeah, that's right, Sam Howell was quarterbacking against the Baltimore Ravens defense that for the most part didn't have any of their starters. So what does that mean? How can we compute that to say, ah, Sam Howell, Yay, Sam Howell, nay. What, 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 what can we do with that? The same thing with Jordan Love. The same thing with Jordan Love. Again, I mentioned the fact, practice, and all this type of stuff. But until the bullets start flying, we, we don't know. And once those bullets start flying, then how long are we going to, um, how long are we going to wait with Jordan Love? 
before we say yay or nay? Are we going to be doing the same thing that we did with Dak Prescott or that what we're doing with Dak Prescott in terms of Prescott comes out, has one good game. Oh, Dak Prescott's the man. Oh, Dak Prescott's the quarterback. Oh, Dak, Dak Prescott is living up to his salary. Oh, Dak Prescott is, is uh, you know, one of the top 10 quarterbacks and blah, blah, blah. Then the next week he comes out and throws three interceptions. Oh, I don't know about Dak Prescott. Is Dak Prescott the right quarterback for the uh, Dallas Cowboys? Should Dallas move in a different direction now that uh, Dak Prescott has shown that he can't, uh, uh, you know, that he's a turnover machine, that he can't um, take care of the football, all of this type of stuff? The ups and downs and ebbs and flows. Now, Dallas is a different animal because Dallas is so is such a polarizing team. Because Dallas is a polarizing team, Dak Prescott is a polarizing player. You love him, you hate him. If he does well, you want to praise him if you love him. And if you hate him when he does when he does poorly, you want to jump all over him. Jordan Love doesn't have that, thank goodness. But in terms of playing for a historically great franchise, a, a, a nationally known franchise like the Green Bay Packers, where are we going? What are we doing? What's going to be the expectations? How long should we wait? How long should we wait as far as the progression? How patient should we be, how patient should you be if you're a fan of the Green Bay Packers, especially knowing what should be the expectations of this team? It's a situation where, hey, look, man, would, would Brock Purdy and the um, San Francisco 49ers, Brock Purdy came out, had a great uh, opening drive uh, against the Denver Broncos. I believe he completed five out of six passes. And you know, the notion in terms of should he be the starting quarterback because he was injured in the um, NFC Championship game against the Philadelphia Eagles. So he comes back, he's playing well, and he's playing well in practice and this, that, and the other. So great. Brock Purdy, Mr. Relevant, second-year guy from Iowa State, is now clearly the starting quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers. With that, you also have to equate that, you know what, man? It's a situation where we we, we might love to uh, get Trey Lance in there. We invested a lot in Trey Lance. Knowing where the San Francisco 49ers are as an organization and what their expectations are, if this is a situation now, should we give up on the experiment of Trey Lance? Because of what Brock Purdy did last season through eight games, are we now comfortable enough to say, hey, yeah, without question, without a doubt, we do feel that Brock Purdy is going to be our guy moving forward. Are we ready after only eight games in the career of Trey Lance to say that, you know what, this guy's a bust and we need to move on from him, especially after everything that we gave up to get him? It's almost like a Kurt Cousins... RG3 type of situation here with the um, with the commanders. Back in the day where Robert Griffin III, when he was drafted, Heisman Trophy winner out of Baylor, this was going to be the guy that was going to bring relevance back to um, Washington, D.C. in terms of his football program is concerned, in terms of the, uh, in terms of the then Washington Redskins were concerned, and this was going to be the guy. And then in the fourth round, you draft a guy like Kurt Cousins. Shanahan drafts a guy like, named Kurt Cousins. And it's like, what the hell's going on? Then... Robert Griffin III, after a very, after after a um, very productive first year as quarterback, blows out his ACL, comes back too soon, doesn't perform well. Other things going on behind the scenes, off the scene, off the field. Now all of a sudden, Kirk Cousins comes in and he starts playing well, and Kirk Cousins now assumes the mantle of starting quarterback in the NFL. And it's a situation. Well, what happened to Robert Griffin III, the guy that we thought was going to be the foundation for? 
the Washington then Redskins to move to the elite status of the NFL. I mean, hell, I was doing podcasts where I was speaking about during the first year of Robert Griffin III. He was so dynamic. He was so... He was so addictive in terms of the thoughts and feelings that Washington football fans had of the improvement of the team, not just of the improvement of the team in terms of on the field, but what he brought to the entire nation, the football nation, in terms of what the Washington then Redskins could be, not just in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, but for, for all over the country. I mean, this was a situation where the Washington then Redskins could be a national brand that everybody from Podunk, Iowa, all the way to uh, Miami, Florida, all the way up to uh, Maine could be could be knowing about and be interested in and have an opinion about. Robert Griffin III, at one time I said, and I mean this still to this day, when Robert Griffin III was doing his thing for the then Washington Redskins, I said, if he continues to do what he's doing, if he continues to progress, and if he continues to be the quarterback that we all hope and dream that he can be, that he's showing us the potential to be, this guy could be the greatest athlete in Washington, D.C. sports history. He could be more acclaimed, he could be more loved, he could be more beloved than any other athlete, coach, sports figure in sports history within the DMV. That meant more than Joe Gibbs, more than John Thompson, more than Lefty Drizel, more than John Riggins, more than Joe Thiesman, more than any other athlete. You name them, Robert Griffin III had had that potential. And here you got a guy in Kurt Cousins who wasn't even thinking about playing, who was talking about trading me because the way this guy's playing, I'm never going to get on the field. Robert Griffin III get injured, Kurt Cousins comes in and he plays, and the situation was, okay, how much of the luster, how much of the commitment, how much of the dedication, how much of everything that we've invested in Robert Griffin III should still be tried to rekindled, or should we just move on? And it was all based on the fact that, hey, how good is the team? How much time do we have? How, what, what are the expectations? And it's the same thing with the San Francisco 49ers, with Brock Purdy, and um, with Brock Purdy and uh, Trey Lance. But we need to win. The, the, the San Francisco 49ers right now are in a position to compete for a Super Bowl. They don't have time to go through the ups and downs of an inexperienced quarterback like a Trey Lance. They, they cannot right now afford to go through those mistakes that Trey Lance is going to make because of his lack of experience in the NFL, the San Francisco 49ers can't afford to do that. And yes, I know that uh, John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan put a lot of equity and put a lot to move up and invested a lot in the trade land. But as of right now, we're trying to win a court. We're trying to win a Super Bowl. And we need a quarterback who's going to be able to do that. As of right now, Brock Purdy gives us that situation, gives us that best situation. Now, you have to think long-term and short-term. Short-term right now, Brock Purdy gives us the ability to win a championship, to win football games more than Trey Lance. Because of that, Brock Purdy is our starting quarterback. But when we're speaking for the long game, when we're speaking in terms of four, five, six years down the road, is Brock Purdy still going to be the Brock Purdy that we see right now, which is a pretty decent, functionable quarterback put into the hands of one of the best offensive minds in the game right now? Or are we going to have a situation where we have a chance, and this is the reason why 
we did everything that we did to move to get Trey Lance. We have a guy in Trey Lance that could be a game changer, that could be a generational great, because that's the reason why we did everything that we did to give him, to get him. How much short-term do we invest in terms of Brock Purdy and maybe moving Trey Lance or doing whatever? Because I hear people talking about, oh, since Brock Purdy is now the quarterback, you have to trade Trey Lance. Why? Why? Well, because of after eight games, we see what Trey Lance can do. And after eight games, we see what Brock Purdy can do. So for those who think that Brock Purdy is going to be the guy, you, you actually think that now you have yourself a franchise quarterback, a quarterback who can consistently compete for championships, a, a quarterback who, for the most part, when they play another team, when they play another elite team, when they play another team that has aspirations and the talent and the potential to win a Super Bowl, that Brock Purdy is either going to be on the same playing field and even better than this guy? You, you think that is what Brock Purdy is going to be after only eight games? And he could be. I have no idea. And after eight games of what you saw, Trey Lance can't do this, he can't do that. Obviously, but, um, Shanahan and um, John Lynch made a mistake, so we need to move on from Trey Lance. That's the assessment that you're going to be making after only eight games from a guy who played at South Dakota State or what, North Dakota State, and then missed an entire year because of COVID, only played in one exhibition game. So in essence, in about three or four years, he's played in what, maybe what, nine, ten games? You're, You're going to give up on that potential? You're going to give up on that investment already? It could be the right choice. I don't know, but you're ready to make that move right now? Brock Purdy starting quarterback? Yeah, great, wonderful, fantastic. Not giving up on Trey Lance just yet. It's okay for him to be a backup quarterback. How long did it take Aaron Rodgers before he became a quarterback, starting quarterback in the league? Jordan Love, his predecessor, how long did it take for him to uh, become a starting quarterback in the league? I, I, I know that in this day and age of football that we have to play rookies and we have to play them right away and and all these type of things, but man, there, there was a time where, you know, you could be a successful starting quarterback in the NFL and not automatically come in and play your rookie season, that there was there, there was some advantage, there was some benefits of actually taking a year or two to uh, learn the game, this, that, and the other, learn the system, and then come in when you're ready and get the job done. Maybe Brock Purdy is the quarterback. Well, Brock Purdy is the quarterback for San Francisco now. But are you sure? He's going to be that guy next season and the season after that and the season after that to the fact, to the point that you're going to say, let's jettison Trey Lance and just throw away everything that we've invested in the guy. I don't know. I don't know. It's not my decision to make, but I would, I wouldn't be so, uh, I wouldn't be so quick to go ahead and and, and do such a thing. So let me see here. I, 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 I would just, kind of hold on to Trey Lance and see what we got. I mean, you got Mike Shanahan. This is a situation where even if you are going to uh, trade Trey Lance, where would you trade him to? You would trade him to a spot where he would be a a um, quarterback that is in the um, build, rebuilding stage, in, in the process of building, growing. You would throw him out there as a starting quarterback right now. I don't care how bad you are. Trey Lance is not ready for that situation just yet. Doesn't mean that in a year or two or three that he can't be. And so you got a starting quarterback who's 25, 26 years old. That means what? You're going to get, if, if everything is copacetic and everything, he reaches his potential, you're going to get, if he starts at 25, another 10, 12 years 
a really good football play from this guy? Patience, my man. Patience. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Watching a little bit of the... Watching a little bit of the... <clears throat> excuse me. Of the uh, uh, quarterbacks. The um, rookie quarterbacks. Bryce Young. C.J. Stroud. Really haven't watched too much of Anthony Richardson. He didn't play the uh, last preseason game and such. But I was watching a little bit of Bryce Young, and I have some concerns of Bryce Young. I was speaking about, hey, what is the rush to have a rookie quarterback start? And look, I, I, I know that this is not happening. This is almost like this argument of why do NBA teams need to shoot so many three-pointers or why can't pitchers go complete, throw complete games in Major League Baseball? Now it almost seems like the analytics, it almost seems like the, 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 the horse is out the barn, the tube is out the toothpaste, or whatever, uh, the, the toothpaste is out the tube, whatever you call that shit, in terms of we can't go back to what it was before. But does Bryce Young really need to be starting for the Carolina Panthers? And I, and I say this, well, Carolina, or uh, Bryce Young is the best quarterback for the Carolina Panthers. He's the best quarterback that we have on the team. He's earned the right to start as a quarterback, blah, blah, blah. Okay, all right, I get it, fine, wonderful. But have you seen that offensive line? Now, again, it's only two preseason games. Not going to write anything in stone based on two preseason, two preseason games and a couple of uh, starts in a couple of series that Bryce Young has played in. But if you're a Carolina Panther fan, are you a little bit concerned about some of the hits that Bryce Young has been taking from this so far putrid offensive line in terms of performance by the Carolina Panthers. You take a look at the offensive weapons that they have around him, and now you speak about how important it is to have that franchise quarterback. Are you certain that Bryce Young should be starting? Now look, Frank Wright knows a lot more about what's happening than I am. So if he feels yes, all right. If you feel that Bryce Young is that guy and he needs to start and this, that, and the other, all right, all right. You know a lot more about this than I do, so all right. But my concern is going to be, hey, look, man, um, that offensive line better get better, and I mean a lot better, if Bryce Young is going to survive his uh, first year in the NFL because of what I saw against the uh, New York Giants and um, oh, was it the Jets they played the first preseason game? I don't remember, but I remember focusing on the uh, um, focusing on that Jets game of him playing in the first couple of series and also watching some of the highlights of him against the Giants. If that's the, if that's the way the offensive line is going to be or around that same level of, um, of ineptitude, is it wise to have Bryce Young go through that? Is it why for Bryce Young to be taking those type of hits on a consistent basis, game by game, his rookie season? When you're investing in that quarterback, would it be wise to say, hey, look, man, you're not playing. We're going to go ahead and play Matt Corral. Why? Not because we think that Matt Corral is better, but B, this is a long-term project. And we can't have you getting hit. We can't have you playing behind that offensive line because it's going to be taking years and years of productivity and potential off of your career. We're not going to we're not going to feed you to the lambs like what happened with David Carr, where he basically got beaten up out of the league. That offensive line for Carolina so far has been porous, has been putrid, has been repugnantly bad.
And you're going to put a quarterback, you're going to be putting your franchise quarterback who's a slight build, who's what, 5'11 and a half and not even 200 pounds, who's not the most mobilest thing out there. You're going to put him out there as a rookie quarterback against those, behind that offensive line where you don't have a number one receiver, where you don't have a top wide receiver or running back to help you out in that situation, a go-to receiver or a go-to tight end. You're going to put Bryce Young out there against those type of obstacles and those type of uh, situations. I, why not Why not just sit him a little bit more? Why play him at all? Why put him behind that offensive line? Have Carolina stink, have them get Marvin Harrison Jr. or an offensive lineman or do something and improve that team. Now, again, it ain't going to happen. And I again, this type of opinion or thought process might be foolhardy or ridiculous or anything else in between. But I mean, I'm just thinking, okay, what exactly is Carolina going to do this year? Is Carolina going to shock the world and become contenders to win a division in the NFC South that is porous, that is there for the taking, that might be the worst in um, in the NFL when you speak about New Orleans and Atlanta, Carolina, and Tampa? But, I, I'm, again, I'm thinking long-term. We have this guy, you know, Bryce Young, who's, what, 20, 21 years old, somewhere around there, 22, I think 22 years old. I want him to be the starting quarterback for the Carolina Panthers, Panthers when he's in his mid-30s. I want him to have the same type of career in terms of longevity with one team, in terms of consistency with one team that Aaron Rodgers had with the Green Bay Packers, that Troy Aikman had with the Dallas Cowboys. That's what I want. That Brett Favre had with the uh, Green Bay Packers. That's what, I, that's what I want. I want my franchise quarterback to be a franchise quarterback and be a quarterback that can lead us to the promised land, that could get us in opportunities to win championships when he's 27, 30, 35, 38 years old. That's what I want from Bryce Young. Carolina Panthers aren't going to be able to do that now. So if you're, so, so I want to play the long game. I want to be able to play the long game. And I don't think that, you know, having an offensive line, putting Bryce Young behind an offensive line that was so, that is so uh, inept so far, like the Carolina Panthers offensive line, don't know if that's really a, a wise idea. I really don't know if that's, uh, is that prudent? I mean, we, we saw what happened with uh, Justin Fields last year in the terms of how we got beat up. The only difference is Justin Fields is 6'3 and 230 pounds. Bryce Young is 5'10 and weighs 194. So, C.J. Stroud had a better outing week two compared to week one. That's fantastic. Again, Anthony Richardson didn't play. I guess that you could say that um, the most intriguing or sleeper quarterback who might be worth pay- paying attention to is uh, Aiden O'Connell. For the Raiders, the Las Vegas Raiders out here, 24 years old, drafted from Purdue in the uh, fourth round, arguably the best rookie quarterback from week one in the preseason, was impressive against the uh, Rams, you know, completed, completed 11 of 18 passes for 163 yards, two touchdowns. Through two weeks, he's completed 26 of 36 passes for 304 yards, three touchdowns, and an interception. Hey, man, just, just looking, just thinking, just throwing it out there. We don't know. There's a reason why he was drafted in the fourth round, but hell, what Dak Prescott was drafted, what, in the fourth or sixth round? And he's making 40-something million dollars. Sam Howell drafted in the sixth round. He's the starting quarterback for Mike Commanders. It happens. So if there's, there's, there's always a situation where something like that happens. And you know, in terms of the first-round picks of quarterbacks are concerned, um, there's no guarantee at all that these quarterbacks will not just be not live up to expectations of being drafted as high as they did, but they might 
not even uh, have a situation two or three or four years down the road where either A, they're in the league, or B, being a starting quarterback. They could be a backup quarterback somewhere. They could be fighting for a starting position um, somewhere. And there could be that fourth-round quarterback, that third-round quarterback who is either a um, pro bowler or a starter. So Aiden O'Connell, I'm not saying that he's going to be that guy. I'm just saying that uh, maybe it's something that we should pay a little bit more attention to um, if you're with that. So, yeah, the NFL rolling on, preseason rolling on, doing some things. Now, college football. College football week zero starting. I'm going to get into, again, just go over once again my thoughts and feelings about the University of Florida, the docuseries that I saw concerning that football program and college athletics and NIL and all this stuff and those who are whining and crying about how college football is going down the tubes because of the um, player empowerment and the power and the control that these college football players have in their career. I'm going to discuss that. And again, just some things, some storylines from uh, the college football season that's going to be beginning um, this weekend, speaking about Georgia's and speaking about a team, speaking about the team that I feel outside of Alabama, outside of LSU, outside of Michigan, outside of Ohio State, that has the best chance, the best realistic chance, not just to compete for a national championship, but to pull off the slight upset, beat Georgia, and be that team that could win the national championship. Next segment, I will tell you, Exactly who that team is. Time for me to boogie Wendell's World and Sports. Baby, I need your loving. Got to have all your loving. Baby, I need your loving. Got to have all your loving. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us, getting down again, what I saw on uh, Tuesday night, recording this on a Wednesday morning, but I was watching this uh, docuseries on Netflix, very good docuseries, about the University of Florida football program from uh, 05 to uh, 2010, in terms of big time college football, the rise I guess you could say it's a precipitous fall of of the Florida football program, Urban Meyer, Tim Tebow, those type of things. First of all, I would like to congratulate. I was a little bit worried. I was a little bit um, wary about watching this podcast because I didn't want it to turn into what most topics about Florida football turn into, especially if they're going to be speaking about Florida football 
during that time. I, I didn't I didn't want it, this to turn into a dick sucking Tim Tebow type of uh, docu series, where they just go ahead. I lived through that man. I lived through the Tim Tebow bullshit. I lived through the Tim Tebow nonsense. We we all did. Right, as sports fans, we all went through that nonsense and uh, didn't want to go through that again. I'm I'm, I'm glad that it's over, Um, but I was glad that while they, of course, stressed the importance of Tim Tebow and what he meant to the program, which he was one of the um, better college football programs. Excuse me, he was one of the better college football players in the history of the game. No doubt of him, the quarterback position, the accomplishments that he made. Of course, he made a, of course, he made an impact uh, in terms of him as a football player, what it meant for the university, what it meant for the region. Despite you know what some of us may think about you know him being a virgin and being down in Florida and he could bang every co-ed that he wanted to, but yet and still, instead of taking advantage of his fame and fandom with beautiful ladies that, uh, you know, we would take 10 years off of our life to uh, have sex with. Tim Tebow was a guy, when everybody was out partying and doing their thing, he was either reading the Bible or he was studying his playbook while also being able to uh, graduate or being able to um, be accomplished in his uh, studies. So for a guy that was put in that position for him to do those type of things, that's admirable. That's something that we should applaud and something that's uh, really a good attribute about Tim Tebow. I don't think Tim Tebow um, was the guy who was the main focus of the ire when I just used to like, you know, throw things at the television and yell, shut up and Use the Lord's name and um, use the Lord's name in vain, cursing them out and stuff. When we were speaking about Tim Tebow, it was just the, it was just the going on and on and on about how great Tim Tebow was, and mainly one of the things that was put into the sauce and baked into the cake in terms of why we needed to go on and on and on with the ridiculous platitudes and how great he was and he was Superman and he was a fine young man. If I had a daughter, boy, would I love for her to meet and marry Tim Tebow and all this kind of nonsense and he can walk on water and he can cure cancer and he can find Bin Laden and send him to heaven and all this, all, all of this bullshit surrounding Tim Tebow was based on the fact that A, he was a Christian, B, he was a blue hair, blue hair, he was a blonde hair, blue, white, white guy. I don't know if he. Would, I don't think he had blue blonde hair, but he he was he was the uh, he was the uh, blue eyed white guy who was a Christian. You know, this would have been Abdul Fakir, who was a practicing Muslim from um, from Dagestan, who came over and was doing the thing. Not nearly would he be getting the same amount of attention and love and praise and admiration that the uh, media gave Tim Tebow. Not he, there's no way that they the fan bases would have gave. Uh, anybody the type of love that Tim Tebow gave if he wasn't a white guy Christian. So that was also one of the things that also would um, get into my craw, that would tighten my jaws, shall we say, when it came to uh, Tim Tebow. But So basically, I'd like to say thank you so much to Netflix for not being like Tom Brenneman was when he was speaking about when Tebow was doing a game and it was like, you know, Tom Brenneman was like, I don't know, man, is this your gay lover or some nonsense like this? Because the guy was going... On and on and on and on and Tebow this and Tebow that and Tebow this and Tebow that. It was like, fuck, man, you know that there's another team playing, right? And fuck, you know that there's other players out there doing some things, right, Tom? Maybe you need to concentrate on that instead of going on and on and on about how great of a human being Tim Tebow was for fuck's sake. So... That was some of the stuff that uh, used to get on my nerve and used to drive me nuts about Tim Tebow. Then you would have these evangelicals who 
I don't know, man. In terms of this country is concerned, you know, I think evangelicals are one of the biggest terrorist threats in this country as far as their stupidity is concerned. Um, you know, oh my goodness, see a Tim Tebow because he bows and he kneels and he's with God and all this kind of stuff. A southern evangelical is just one where it's just kind of like, you know, like, man, could, could someone please give me a gun? But it's a situation where all of that came into play and it was just too much. So I'd like to thank Netflix again for not going on and on and on and talking about how great Tim Tebow was. But as I mentioned before, in the first part of the segment when speaking about Tim Tebow and speaking about um, the Florida football program and speaking about what these guys were going through, what these guys had to put up with and how important that these guys were to the University of Florida, man, how much money they generated for the university, how much impact, how much sway that they had on the uh, had on Tallahassee, how they had on uh, how, what, Tallahassee, is Tallahassee in that Florida state? Gainesville, damn it, how much, uh, I bet you they had some impact on Tallahassee too, that's how wide ranging that uh, Florida was, uh, the University of Florida football program was, but uh, yeah man, down there in Gainesville it was a situation where it was like, yeah man, they, they, the importance of that football program was so huge, was so impactful, and yeah, these guys were treated like rock stars. And yeah, these guys, you know, you go, go into a bar and get yourself a free drink or go into a restaurant and get yourself a free meal and this, that, and the other. And there were some perks that they had that wasn't written into the contract of what it was to be a college football star for the University of Florida. All that stuff is fine and dating and great, and I'm quite sure that it was documented uh, very much that the uh, Florida football program and some of their players took full advantage of some of the um, some of the goodies, some of the perks of being uh, impactful football players down there, but yet still, you take a look at the practices. When you take a look at just the intensity, when you take a look at the mission, when you take a look at the goal, when you take a look at the expectations, when you take a look at the pressure, really, you're going to sit there and say, "Hey, you know what? Getting a scholarship, good enough. That's wonderful enough." That's A-OK. That's really great. When Urban Meyer was going in there and talking about because the team's expectation is to win a championship, that we're just going to go ahead and we're just going to put them through hell. We're going to make them into almost like soldiers. We're going to give them the training that soldiers do. And what my main goal is going to be is for them to see the, the, which players are going to quit and which players are going to survive. Which players are going to perform and which players am I going to purposely try to drive out of the program. Because they're not going to be um, factors or they're not going to be helpful in my uh, aspirations to win a championship. I don't give a damn what this kid's GPA is. I don't give a damn how wonderful of a guy that he is. I don't give a damn what his family situation is. I don't give a damn anything outside of the football program except what can he do for me to help me win a football game. And if he can't do that, then he's got to go. He's got to go. So it's amazing going, and, and again, this was all part of Florida, but you don't think this happens at Alabama? You don't think this happens at Oklahoma? You don't think this happens at Texas? You don't think this happens at USC? You don't think this happens at Washington? You don't think this happens at Clemson? You don't think this happens at Michigan State? You don't think this happens at Ohio State? You don't think that this happens everywhere in college football? That these coaches and everything, basically when they come in, or coaches who are making these big fat contracts are saying, look, my main goal is to win football games. 
That's the expectations of my bosses. That's the expectations of the community. That's the expectations of the region. That's the expectations of the alumni. That's the expectations of the boosters. That's the expectations of the entire football university slash everything else in between. So if you can't help me do that, you're no longer a use for me. I don't give a damn what you're doing. I don't care what your GPA is. I don't care what your major is. I don't care. Because you need to help me continue to make the type of money that I'm making and allow me to have the power and influence over this region that I need to have. And getting a 4.0 in molecular biology or whatever bullshit, that ain't going to help me. You winning Nobel Peace Prizes for feeding the hunger and solving climate change, that ain't going to do me any good. Having a team GPA of 3.2 and having guys go into higher levels of education and teaching and, and, and social work and everything else, that ain't going to do me any good if I'm 5 and 7. If, if Florida doesn't win a national championship with Urban Meyer, he don't give a damn how many, I don't, he don't, I don't give a damn how many Tim Tebow's he has on his team. I don't care how many fucking Bible study groups that uh, these players have. I don't care what type of impact that they have on a community off of the football field. doesn't matter. If they don't win, the coach is going to get fired. The new coach is going to come in, knowing the expectation of what the fan base and everything is all about, and he's going to get rid of those players. He's going to say, I don't know where you're going, but you can't stay here. And it doesn't have to deal with any type of domestic battery or it doesn't have to deal with any type of felony or being arrested. It's all about your performance. So when you go to these big time universities, it ain't about getting your it ain't about getting your degree. It's not about being an impactful person outside of the football field. You are going to be dedicating the majority of your time to helping the school win football games. That is your main priority. It's not about getting a degree. It's not about being that it's not about making that transition from being a boy to a man through academics and education and campus life and meeting other people. No, it's about having us win football games. That was what I took away after watching that docuseries, which you already knew. But again, you you put these players through those type of expectations and through that pressure, and these guys can't go out and make money for themselves? So other people, other businesses, other places get to uh, get rich, fat and happy off of these players, and these guys get nothing before NIL started? These coaches have the ability to say, you know what, you're not helping me win, transfer. We're not going to reward, we're not going to continue your scholarship, get out. Yeah, we know that you have a GPA. We, yeah, we know you're adjusting well to life. Yeah, we know that your parents are in the close proximity to, proximity to where you can go and visit them and all those type of things. Yeah, you're a great guy. Yeah, your professors love you. Yeah, all this type of stuff. Yeah, you're doing great work in the community. But guess what? If you can't dedicate fully to yourself and to me, your blood, sweat, tears, heart, pain, and everything that goes into this program... If you can't give me that because you're too busy trying to get a degree, you can't stay here or at least be on scholarship uh, for a football program. But yet still, we get mad at these players when they transfer for whatever reason. 
Oh my goodness, college football is broken. College football is terrible. College football is horrible. College football is the worst that it's ever been. Oh my goodness, I can't believe it. We're, we're, we're paying these players to do this, that, and the other. Oh my goodness, 8,000 people, 8,000 players in the transfer portal. This is terrible. This is horrible. Oh, college football is the wild, wild west. It's the worst that it's ever been. It's out of whack. We need to do something. We need to rein it in. We need to give more powers back to the people who say that if you cannot help me win, regardless of what you're doing off the football field, I have the power to tell you, you can't stay here. Let's give it back to that again. Let's bring it back. That's the good old days of college football. When we could have Urban Meyer and these guys who are just a beacon of righteousness and, 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 and producing great young men, you know, great citizens for life. Let's give more power back to them. So they can go through these type of rituals or they can have this type of power and control back. So they can go to the paper and say, if a player's not playing well, I didn't recruit him. I didn't want him. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. College football is broken. Oh my goodness gracious. Let's not give, let's not give more power and control to, a, to an 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 year old because they don't know anything. They're too young. They're too immature. But the coaches, oh yes, they, they can guide them. They'll be there. Of course, until they get a better offer and more money, then they'll skip out on the player and just leave them hanging dry. Oh, but for the player to do something like that, oh, college football is just completely out of control. But Wendell, the transfer portal, 5,000, 8,000, you, you, you see what's happening at the University of Colorado. Oh, my goodness gracious, that's horrible. That's terrible. Fuck you. Go watch the documentary. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad... <clears throat> That you could be with us. So, yeah, I just want to really quickly start off with um, college football in terms of week zero starting this weekend. Last season of college football the way we know it, right? This is going to be the final year of the 14 playoff. Um, we're going to be um, doing a 12-team playoff in 2024. And, of course, this is going to be the final year in all likelihood of the Pac-12, or at the very least the uh, Pac-12 that we know in terms of its importance in college uh, football, but I think heading into the season, there, there's some changes, I guess, not in, just in terms of the rules or anything else, but just in terms of the overall power or the overall thinking that we've had over the last 10 years of uh, college football when it comes to who's the team, who's the elite team in the uh, in the country right now, who, who is the new Alabama, who is the new USC, who is that new program because now we actually have a team that we can start applying the D word to depending upon what your definition of the word dynasty is because Georgia now has a situation to where um, they can do something that hasn't been done since 1935, 36, 37, somewhere around there in terms of what the University of Minnesota football program did, 1934, 35, and 36, when they won three straight national championships. That's the last time anybody has three-peated. Georgia has that, has that chance. In fact, Georgia going back-to-back, -back, been, that's been accomplished 13 times by eight different teams. So to really situate themselves, to do something in terms of no other program in the modern era has done. Pete Carroll, when they were riding high at USC, he didn't have the opportunity to do that, or he didn't accomplish that. 
Nick Saban, arguably the greatest college football coach of all time, seven national championships, and one of the most historic programs in college football history, he's never had, he, he's never been able to do that. Now Kirby Smart, a protege of Nick Saban, now has the chance to really, really put some distance between his program and all the rest of the programs moving forward. And I think when you take a look at Georgia, and you take a look at the infrastructure, and you take a look at everything around them. You take a look at Alabama and Nick Saban's age, and you take a look at the run that Nick Saban and Alabama had. When you take a look at some of the lack of success that's been happening at the um, at Ohio State. When you take a look now at what happened with Clemson this past season and how they weren't as dominant as they really were and what their position moving forward. Not saying that any of these elite teams, not saying that Ohio State, not saying Michigan, not saying... Uh, now a resurgence at Florida State, not saying Clemson, not saying any of these elite LSU, these elite college football programs are going to fall off the map. But when you think about who's set up for the long term in terms of dominance is concerned and really doing some things that um, their predecessors haven't in terms of elite college football programs, Georgia had that chance right there. Now, I think because of the new age and new era of college football, when you're speaking about now a 12-team playoff and everything, that it might be a little bit harder for Georgia to become that dominant program, which then again, you have to have the discussion. So what's your definition of a dynasty? Is Georgia already a dynasty? Are you already anticipating Georgia winning three championships in a row for them being a dynasty? If Georgia goes undefeated again and wins that national championship, Dynasty. How strong is their dynasty? Where do we start placing their dynasty? When do we? How do we define that dynasty? How would you describe that dynasty? If Georgia goes eleven and one and still wins a national championship, what does that mean? What's your definition? Where is their placement in the greats of college football programs? Is it time now to put Georgia if they win this third? straight national championship is it time for them to be put on the same plane the same level spoke about in the same breath as the Paul Bear Bryant's Alabama team that the era Parsegian's Notre Dame teams that the Jim Crowley Notre Dame teams that the Bud Wilkinson's um, Oklahoma teams or should we even move it now to a more comparable era of football and maybe put them with Pete Carroll's um, teams at USC Nick Saban's teams at Alabama, uh, Dabo Sweeney's team at Florida. If Georgia goes ahead and does this three championships in a row, where do we put that? How do we anoint them? What's going to be their place, not just in recent history, but overall history of one of the great spectacles, which is college football. That's what's facing Georgia right now. That is what uh, the expectations are for Georgia right now is to win that championship and everything is set up for them when you speak about their schedule yeah I know they, they lost 10 uh, players to the NFL I know Jalen Carter was one of the most dominant players in college football um, last year and I know that they lost Destin Bennett and I know that they lost some others but now you're, you're speaking about a team in Georgia that has established themselves as a program that definitely reloads instead of rebuilds or they're reloading while they're rebuilding over the last Six seasons, Georgia has gone seven, 71 and 10 overall, 44 and 5 in the SEC. So, yeah, Georgia lost 10 players to the NFL and lost what three players, Roderick Jones and Nolan Smith and Jalen Carter, all in the first round. But, um, you know, when you're Georgia 
and you're speaking about the talent, and you're speaking about the recruiting, um, and you speak about Carson Betts Beck now being the starting quarterback, and you speak about uh, the fact that for the first time in a while that Kirby Smart is now doing what Nick Saban did, moving slightly away from having that dominance run defense game managing type of quarterback to now opening up now having dynamic receivers and now having dynamic skill uh, positions uh, Brock Bowers right now outside of Marvin Harrison might be the best offensive uh, weapon in college football the offensive line is going to be good and we all know about that defense Georgia again especially with their especially with the way that their schedule is set up there in the SEC East they're not in the SEC West, so they don't have to worry about Alabama during a regular season. They don't have to worry about LSU. They don't have to worry about Arkansas. They don't have to worry about Auburn, even though the former two have not been at the level to once they were to be a threat to a team like Georgia. So basically, Tennessee is going to be their main competition during the regular season. Yeah, Hendon Hooker is no longer there, but Josh Heupel, the coach, has that program in the right direction. Are they going to be able on any certain Saturday to beat a team like a Georgia who's in transition, but based on what they've done over the last six seasons and the way that they've had that program at a high level of uh, consistency and aptitude, that you would think that Georgia would be rolling to another championship. Alabama. Look, again, I'm not saying that Alabama's going to fall off the map. I'm not saying Nick Saban needs to be fired. I'm not saying any of that stupidity. Alabama is still one of the top two or three or five programs in the country. But is Alabama right now in transition? The Alabama-Nick Saban, it's all got to end sometime, right? I mean, Alabama winning championships and doing all these things, high-class, high-profile, number one recruiting classes, all that stuff is great. But sooner or later... They are going to have to, uh, you know, take a backseat, right? I mean, they can't be doing this forever. And I'm interested, and when I say backseat, I'm talking about being the best team in college football. I'm not talking about competing for championships. I think as long as Dick Saban still has his mind in his marbles that uh, they'll be able to uh, win championships or compete for championships. But the dominance that Alabama under Nick Saban has um, reigned over college football for a period of time, is that now over? That's what I'm asking. Who's going to be the starting quarterback for that team, by the way? You've got Jalen Mil- uh, Milrow. You've got Tyler Buckner. You've got Ty Simpson. Who's going to be the starting quarterback? Who's going to be the go-to receiver? Yeah, you've got Ja'Cory Brooks. Um, yeah, you've got Jermaine Burton. You've got Juco transfer Malik Benson. You also have a couple of sophomores like Kobe Prentice and Kendrick Law and Isaiah Bond. You got the talent there, but no one really stood up. No one really stepped up last year for Bryce Young, one of the best players in college football, the best quarterback in college football last year, they didn't get the job done. They didn't have the dynamic receiver. Where's the next Jermaine Williams? Where's the next Henry Shrugs? Where's where is that guy? Where is that go-to receiver? Where's that Devontae Smith? Alabama doesn't have that. Do you realize that for the first time in a little bit that Alabama has not dominated in terms of the uh, preseason All-American team, first team? They only have one. You only have corner cornerback... Kool-Aid McKinstry. That's the only first-team All-American selection. They have J- they have a tackle J.C. Latham, edge rusher Dallas Turner. They were on the second team, but worth that dynamic quarterback. I mean, you went from Tua to Mac Jones to um, uh, Bryce Young. Where's where, where that quarterback? Now, you know, may- maybe it's one of these guys. Maybe it's Ty Simpson. Maybe it is Jermaine 
um, um, uh, Jalen Milrow. Maybe it's Tyler Buckner to transfer from uh, Notre Dame. And oh, speaking about that, Tommy Reese, new offensive coordinator. You have a new defensive coordinator for uh, Alabama also. How's that going to play? How is that going to get the job done? How is that going to mesh? So Alabama, I'm, I'm, and of course, you know, on defense, you'll all, Alabama has not been the Alabama of Nick Saban's defenses at uh, LSU or those uh, stifling um, defenses that he had. So losing Will Anderson and others, that's going to uh, that's going to have that's going to be impactful. We'll know, we will know, we will see, we will see when they play Texas exactly what the impact is in terms of that. I want to get to this and uh, Ryan Day. <laughs> Should Ryan Day's job be in jeopardy? I know this is ridiculous, and I know this is kind of foolhardy, and I know this is like Wendell's with the hot take. Wendell's hot take. I didn't say Ryan Day should be fired. I'm just saying, based on expectations, should Ryan's day should Ryan Day's job be in jeopardy? Look, I understand that he has a career record of 45 and six, going into his fifth season. I know that he's won championships in terms of the Big Ten championships. I know that for the most part he's been making it to the college football playoffs. I know all this kind of stuff. I know that Ohio State is one of the elite, elite programs, one of the few programs in college football that has the opportunity to win a championship year in and year out. I get it. I understand it. I understand that they're on the same plane as an Alabama and a Georgia and those type of schools. I understand that. Very short order, thanks to Ryan Day. He has proven that he doesn't need Urban Meyer's football players and recruits to win uh, football games. He doesn't need Urban Meyer's cachet to still be able to recruit high-level football players. I understand. This is a guy who, goodness gracious, I mean, he's had, what, 16 NFL draft picks, nine first-round draft picks, including three of his Ohio State, uh, well, three of his uh, starting quarterbacks being drafted in the uh, first round, C.J. Stroud just being drafted high, uh, Justin Fields being drafted high, Dwayne Haskins, R.I.P., being uh, drafted high. So, yeah, th- th- there's, there's no talent that this is not someone who is um, – piggybacking off the success or or uh, it's just, uh, you know, he, he Ryan Day is legit. But my question is then, so, the, so, so why should his job be at risk? You know, they failed to win a national championship. They're one and three in the college football playoffs. They've lost to Michigan two consecutive seasons. In fact, they've lost by a combined score of 87 to 50. And when you take a look with the uh, rankings for recruits in 2020, he had the number five ranking. 21, he had the uh, number two ranking. 22 and 23 recruiting classes were ranked number four. And so far in 2024, he's ranked number two. I'm not saying that Ryan Day should be fired. I think it would be kind of silly for them to do so. But here's the reason why I don't think it's so foolhardy to say that, hey, man, Ryan, you got to do me. You got to do something here. I mean, I don't know if the program is stagnant. I don't know what it is, but... Here's the reason why I think that conversation should be had. Again, not leading to a conclusion that Ryan Day should be fired. But still, this is the reason why people say, well, he's 45 and 6. You've named off all of these great things and these accolades that he's done. Wendell, how in the world are you going to then turn around and say that his job should be in jeopardy? The man is 45 and 6. Here's the situation. When you're Ohio State and you have that type of talent, and you're playing the team that you're playing. Take, for instance, Ohio State in a, what, 14-game season, right? How, how many games, how many opponents that they're playing 
in a 14-game season where they're going to win just by getting off the bus. Where the talent discrepancy is so great that basically Ohio State has to show up, put in some effort, and they'll win. Out of those 14 games, what are we looking at? Five? Six? Right? So you're, you're almost speaking about half the games that you're playing, you're going to win just based on talent alone. Then you go into the other games where you're, the talent discrepancy may not be as great as it is if you're playing a school from the MAC or if you're playing one of these schools just to uh, better themselves. Uh, you know, maybe give a paycheck to a school that's in need of a big paycheck from a major university to keep their athletic program alive. We, we see that a lot with the HBCU schools. That's the reason why Howard University can get smashed by uh, Maryland 78 to nothing and still continue to play them. That's the reason why FAMU can play Florida or Florida State or Miami, get beat up 63 to nothing and still continue to get a check. That's the reason why historically black schools from the SWAC and the uh, MEAC can play the LSUs and play the Alabamas and play the Ohio, Ohio States and play the Clemsons of the world, get their asses whooped and still receive a big fat paycheck because that's going to take care of their athletic department and they can't get that any, anywhere else. So that's all factored into the equation when we speak about Ryan Day having that 45-6 and six record or those guardy records that are set when you have coaches like Nick Saban or a Dabu Sweeney or a Bob Stoops at the time or, um, or, or any of those type of elite coaches. While on top of being excellent coaches, they have the, they have the advantage of being able to play the Tennessee Martins and to play the schools from the MAC and play the Hawaii's and play the Wyoming's and play the UNLV's and play the uh, Jackson State's and play the Grambling's and play the Prairie Views and play the North Carolina A&T's and play the, uh, those type of schools. So when you take a look at it, and I know I'm going a little bit farther than I should have, I'm sorry. <clears throat> when you take a look at it, <clears throat> Ryan Day's um, accomplishments in terms of his one-loss one records are concerned have been greatly built on teams that he should be whooping up on anyway. So when you speak about Ryan Day and Ohio State and the advantages that they have and the talent discrepancy that they have and they're going in in a 14-game season, out of 14 games, what are we looking at here? Maybe where they really are either playing a team near their level or on the same level or above their level. We're looking at maybe out of 14 games, and you're speaking about Ohio State, maybe two, maybe three. Maybe you have the preseason game. I know that Ohio State is going to be playing Notre Dame this year, uh, this season. They have Notre Dame, Penn State, Michigan, for the most part, and then the bowl games, or then the, um, then the college football playoffs. So we're, we're speaking about, about 70% of the games Ohio State should win comfortably, very comfortably, but there is a huge advantage for them because of the talent. So when they play a Maryland, when they play a Northwestern, when they play an Indiana, when they play one of those schools, when Clemson plays a Georgia Tech or a Wake Forest, when Alabama plays a Vanderbilt or an Alabama State or one of these type of schools, of course they're going to blow them out. As soon as they get off the bus, the game is over. So when people talk about, I can't believe that you're speaking about firing Ryan Day after, you know, after the record that he has. Yeah, if he loses to Michigan again in that three years in a row, yeah, 
um, something's going on here that we need to address. Again, this, this meeting is not going to be it's not going to end with you being fired, but but you know, I mean, John Cooper back in the day where he had first round draft picks up and down the line except for quarterback where he had Eddie George and he had talented receivers and he had Dan Wilkerson at defensive end and he had uh, quarterbacks. I mean, it seemed like every position, Andy Katzenmeyer, it seemed like every position that Ohio State had during John Cooper with the, again, the exception of quarterback was being drafted in the first round, whether it was Eddie George, whether it was, you know, uh, as I mentioned before, Dan Wilkinson and David Boston and these guys. The thing was, they couldn't beat Michigan. And the thing was, they couldn't win a championship. And you saw this team with so much talent. And, it was, and you're sitting there going, how in, the, how in the world does John Cooper not win a championship um, having all of this talent? Now, in today's football, in today's age of college football, it would be a little bit different. Because John Cooper, with the talent and the um, success that he had at Ohio State, because now you're talking about four teams getting into the playoffs. Ohio State, back in those days, would have had multiple opportunities, even though losing to Michigan, to have the opportunity to play in the college football playoff, which was a whole nother season, whole nother experience. But, you know, Ryan Day is starting to turn into the modern day John Cooper. They can't go one and three in the college football playoffs with the talent that they have. Again, not saying that Ryan Day needs to be fired. But it's it's just a situation where the, the defense needs to get needs to get better. He brought in Jim Knowles from Oklahoma State last year. The defense got a little bit better, but Michigan basically punked them, ran them down their throats, and beat them up uh, for the second year in a row. So moving forward, we're going to see. Basically, I want to get to this. I know I teased this. I'm sorry I didn't get to this sooner. I'm sorry, Eric G. But uh, the team that I think that had the best chance to beat the um, to beat um, Georgia. And ruin their opportunity for a three-peat if it's not going to be Alabama or one of the teams that are in the top two or three. If it's not going to be Michigan, if it's not going to be Ohio State, I think it's going to be um, USC. And I know Lincoln Riley is not known for his defense. And I know right now that uh, Oklahoma grad and native and does his show on the uh, sports animal, Eric G, is cursing me out right now because Eric, because um, I guess you could say Lincoln Riley to Eric G is like Donald Trump to every um, every common sense, decent human being in this world. It's almost like a curse word. You know what I'm saying? So I, I know that... Um, then hearing such platitudes or hearing that Lincoln Riley could be that guy or be that coach coaching a USC team that could beat Georgia in a championship game or in a semifinal game. I know that uh, Eric is going, la, 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 la. I can't hear you. La, 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 la. Lincoln Riley doesn't have any defense. La, 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 la. Never won a championship in Oklahoma. La, 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 la. You're full of shit. La, la. I understand, Eric, but you got to listen, man. I mean, I mean, if anybody can do it that we might not think can do it or might not have the best chance right now that we think can do it, I think when you have Caleb Williams at the quarterback and with the, with the transfers, with the continuation of talent that Lincoln Riley is accumulating at USC, hey, man, it only takes one magical Vince Young type of performance in the Rose Bowl against USC a couple of years ago, about, about 17 years ago. And it only takes that type of historical performance by a player who has the ability to do so. And you know so because you saw him your freshman year uh, his freshman year at Oklahoma, so you know exactly what Caleb Williams can do in following the sport of football like you and Coach Jones do. And though you have seen and marked and, and um, have admired the progression that Caleb Williams has uh, taken 
upon um, you know being the football player that he is right now. If there's one player, if there's one team, and if there's one coach who can do that to the University of Georgia, not knowing, not being able to see so far what this team is in Georgia, how dominant they're going to be, what level of dominance they're going to have, meeting, meeting the expectation that um, Georgia has in terms of being dominant, in terms of the dynasty talk and all that, on any given Saturday, on any given championship game, on any given Saturday playoff game or championship game, who knows? Who knows? When I get back really quickly, James Harden being fined. Bigger picture, though. What does this mean for Joel Embiid? Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. Last segment of the podcast, last segment of the program, I'll make this very quickly. I'll make this very short because, man, I'm running way past time. Basically, James Harden being fined $100,000 for calling Daryl Morey a liar. Um, James Harden has said that, look, man, there's no way, no how, no way that I'm ever going back to Philadelphia. I don't trust Daryl Morey. I don't like Daryl Morey. Daryl Morey can jump off a fucking bridge. Daryl Morey can go down to Broad Street and get his ass whooped. I'll be there with baseball bats to uh, help in the beatdown of Daryl Morey. He told me that if I take a pay cut that I would be taken care of. He lied to me. He lied. He lied. He lied. Because of that, the NBA fined Harden $100,000 basically for saying, hey, look, man, that's not part of the rules. You can't do that in terms of a team can't say, hey, look, you know what? Take this pay cut and then uh, next season we'll go ahead and we'll take care of you on the back end. You can't do that in the NBA. So that happens in the NBA, but um, basically the NBA wanted to keep that under wraps. So when James Harden came out and basically you know, basically said that without saying it, the NBA office had to uh, slap him down in the um, league and the uh, players league is going to or the players union is going to file a complaint about that what does it mean for Joel Embiid look for the next domino to fall in terms of superstars who want to be traded take a look for Joel Embiid everybody is focused on Luka in terms of man you know with Dallas Kyrie Irving situation doesn't work out. That Luca is going to uh, want to be a, want to get traded and all this type of stuff. And there were some teams and there's some players out there, but Joel Embiid is the guy. And you need to take a look. That I think is um, is the uh, main <laughs> is the main contestant 
the play the I got my money, now it's time for me to be traded game. Uh, because in the NBA, you get your bag first, and then you get the team that you want to go to second. James Harden, uh, you know, but uh, yeah, so that that would be my deal. Because I'm if I'm, if I'm Joel Embiid, looking around saying, hey, look, man, you know, um, again, I, I, my my prime isn't forever. I haven't even gotten to a conference championship, let alone winning an NBA championship. I haven't even gotten close to winning an Eastern Conference championship. Now, a guy who you brought in that was going to help me get to that um get to that uh, uh place now is talking about you know I don't I'm never going to play here this that and the other and when James Harden is has his heels dug in in terms of I ain't going to be doing this I don't want to do this this that and the other uh believe me it's very very rare if ever if James Harden says ah you know what had a change of heart let me go ahead and do my thing and be a good teammate and a good citizen and a good employee Nope, that's not going to be happening. So if I'm Joel Embiid, I'm looking at this very carefully, and I'm also taking a look at the progression of Tyrese Maxey. Um, because you take a look, Tyrese Maxey is going to be the key if Joel Embiid, excuse me, if um, James Harden really is intent on never playing for the Philadelphia 76ers, then it's going to be interesting to see the the development of Tyree, Tyrese Maxey of a guy who can help Joel Embiid win a championship, and what is the front office going to do to eventually get this resolved to where Philadelphia can maintain the opportunity to compete for championships. If you want to trade hard, James Harden because it didn't work, okay, I get it, I got it, but if you, you better bring back something, a.k.a. For instance, Damian Lillard, who's going to help me, Joel Embiid, right now win a, win a championship. But if you're not, then uh, maybe we need to uh, start talking about, I need to go somewhere else. I need to go, I don't know, anywhere else. But uh, Philadelphia is definitely not going to be the place. Joel Embiid, who has had a history of injuries, Joel Embiid, we can't count on him to go through another rebuilding process. And when I say rebuilding process for Philadelphia, in terms of what Embiid and the 76ers have been um, anticipating or have been expected to do over the last couple of years, especially after obtaining James Harden, is basically win themselves a championship. One of the reasons why they got Doc Rivers was to win a championship. One of the reasons why they went through this trust process, um, the, 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 the tanking and all those type of things, is to eventually win a championship. Now, for Philadelphia to be... Uh, number four or number five or number six seed who's not going to get out of the um, semifinals, Eastern Conference semifinals because Miami is, is so much better, because um, the Boston Celtics are so much better, because Milwaukee is so much better. Joel is going to be taking a look at that and say, you know what, man, time for me to get out of here because I can't wait another three or four years for Tyrese to reach a level or find out that he's not going to be able to reach that level so you have to trade him and then we have to start all over again or what are you going to get from Harden then we got to start all over again with that and I have to start all over then I'm going to be in the same situation that Damian Lillard is is, is in in Portland being 32, 33 years old and not having a realistic expectation to win a championship so we need to move we need to move now we need to maintain and improve or else it's time for the um, rebuilding process to start again in Philadelphia, starting with me being traded from the Philadelphia 76ers. Again, if that should be the thinking, if you are Joel Embiid. So that's something that we might need to monitor if you are an NBA fan. All right, I'm out of here. Good to go. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast again. Um, subscribe, download, follow, do all those good things. 
I thank you so much for listening to the uh, podcast. Sorry, fellas. Sorry, I'm on the went over. I was, uh, you know, just got on my soapbox and I couldn't get off. It might be soapy, but it ain't slippery. Windows World and Sports, get me out of here with some music.